Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today's August 18th, 2022, and I'm joined as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and by energy specialist and IPI board chairman, Wayne Stoltenberg. Uh, Wayne is the former chief financial officer of Vine Energy, and so unlike a lot of people who talk about energy policy, Wayne has actually done it. <laughs> so we're talking to somebody uh, with with actual professional and career experience in trying to make energy work and actually produce energy. So Wayne, thanks so much for joining us today. We want to talk today about the Biden administration's confusing and contradictory energy policy. And unfortunately, Dr. Matthews, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> Tom, I am so confused. <laughs> I ha- does, does anybody have an idea what U.S. energy policy is today? I mean, I sort of understood it under George W. Bush. I understood it under Donald Trump. Sort of understood it under Barack Obama. But under Joe Biden, I have no idea. So on, on the campaign trail. Can we talk about Obama first, just since you mentioned Obama? <laughs> um, let us never forget and let us never let them forget that that the Obama administration was devoted to destroying the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the great amusing ironies of history that fracking actually bailed the Obama economy out. Oh, yeah. It was the the only part of the economy that was working well. The only thing that worked was the sector that he was doing his darndest to try to kill. So when Biden was on the campaign trail, he pledged, and I'm quoting now, with regard to new oil and gas drilling, he would stop it, period, period, period. That's a quote. And so one of his first actions which came when he came into office was to pause leasing in order to review the program. Well, shortly after that, a federal judge put a halt on that, paused his pause, and said, well, we're not going to be able to go forward. You can't go forward with that. And so then come April and May, the Biden administration was out doing new oil and gas leases. They were holding all kinds of new oil and gas leases, both onshore and offshore. Got a lot of criticism from the environmentalists for doing that. But then just yesterday, uh, a the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals came up and I and put a pause on the uh, the previous judge's pause on his pause. He unpaused the pause. Unpaused right? the pause, I guess, <laughs> is the way we want to say it. And so now we're at a position where he can go back and decide to not do oil and gas leasing, except I think for some reason, Wayne, that, I mean, I think generally he's required to do oil and gas leasing. So I, I have no idea whether they're going to do oil and gas leasing or not. Well, as, as an industry person, what this tells me is, gosh, if I can avoid federal land and lease from either state lands or private individuals, I mean, one of the great things that a lot of folks don't know about why the United States is the most drilled area in the world is because of private ownership of minerals. The vast majority of minerals, well, a large percentage of minerals are actually owned by individuals as opposed to in Russia or Venezuela or Mexico, they're owned by the government. Yeah, this is something that you that you that you taught me a couple of years ago that had never occurred to me before. Was that again, it's part of the genius of proper of pro- private property rights, right? But most the same way that the federal government sort of claims the spectrum, you know, like in the atmosphere and the airspace, uh, in other countries, the, fe- the the government claims what ha- what exists below the surface. Well, in the United States, unlike just about anywhere else, you have a great confluence of interest between 
the mineral owner, i.e. the individual property owner, and the oil and gas company that would want to go lease the minerals and extract them. Mm. Uh, whereas if you are in England, uh, and picking them as an example, if you're the landowner, you own the surface, uh, do you want somebody coming in and messing up your land and disturbing your cattle and producing something that you have no economic interest in? So the, so the landowner not. has like all of the incentives for the landowner are to preserve the property, not to, not to leverage it for energy extraction. Well, or not to try to develop both. Right. Or again, in, in, in say in the state of Texas, the mineral estate tends to take priority legally over the surface estate, but you do tend to pay the surface owner some damages if you're going to mess his property up mm. and, and the like, which obviously you try not to do, but if you're going to, you're going to change it in any way. So to, to make this clear, we've got federal land, we have state land. We have private land that individuals could hold, and then we have offshore, which is, comes under federal, I guess. But I think you said you said it comes under the state also for the offshore. Yeah, not an expert here because most of what I did was onshore. In fact, almost all of it. But yeah, water is very close to the shore. It may well be, say, the state of Texas, state of Louisiana. But then as you get further offshore, those tend to be uh, federal. Now, you and I had talked at time in the past where you said, generally speaking, if you're out there drilling, even though the royalties that you pay the state were higher than the federal royalties, though Biden is raising the federal royalties, even if, even though the royalties were higher at the state level, you tended to want to be able to go to the state because it just the, the paperwork was less, the re regulations were fewer, and you were able to get something up and running fairly quickly. Getting things permitted, whether it's, uh, you know, Individual minerals or, or state minerals tends to be a whole lot easier uh, than if you're on federal land where the amount of environmental impact studies and other things that you need to, hoops you need to jump to from a regulatory perspective are pretty large and arduous. So given what Dr. Matthews just laid out here, all the confusion, that would tell me, gosh, if we can avoid federal land so I know what's going to be, a, as a producer, what's going to be available to drill, when it's going to be available, that would really help me plan my business a lot more efficiently. Okay, and so let's not leave the 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 obvious point unsaid, if it becomes the policy of the federal government to encourage as much oil and gas production as possible, they should streamline the process, make it easier and more predictable and cheaper to drill on federal lands. That, that, that would be an active way that you could encourage that to happen. But right now, either intentionally or accidentally, they make it more difficult really than it needs to be and more expensive. Couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. Okay. Well, we're talking about the leasing, and that to me is confusing, but that's not the only confusing thing, because as on the first day that Biden was in office, he decided to eliminate uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, which had been sort of a football that they'd kicked back and forth for a, a decade or so. Uh, the Trump administration was going to let it go forward. Obama was putting a hold on it. Uh, so he does that, and, and this is one of our great allies, Canada, which was which sends a lot of oil to the U.S. to be processed and refined, but at the same time, because we've have sort of limited our oil coming from Canada, the Biden administration has been in negotiations with Venezuela, and Biden had to go to Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, and ask them to please, please, pretty please, drill more oil and pump more oil so that the oil. Uh, the gasoline prices will go down in the states, and maybe I can get reelected. Yeah, it's really um, it's incoherent. You know, Canada is an extremely secure source of supply, pretty good ally. They also do produce you know, heavier API gravity, heavier API gravity crude oil 
that runs in our refineries. Uh, a lot of the oil that we're producing, uh, kind of with the shale revolution and fracking, Tom, that you mentioned earlier, tends to be higher API gravity, lighter, sweeter crude. And our refineries, again, were generally built and designed before fracking. We were producing the light, kind of light crude that we are now. They're set up to run heavy Canadian crude or, mm. or, or heavy Venezuelan crude or the heavier, sour Arab grades that come here. So even us producing more here, as you've certainly heard Biden say, that doesn't necessarily fix the problem. A lot of that is going to get exported to the refinery slate that is better equipped to run it. You know, you said incoherent. I'm not sure incoherent captures it because it's literally across purposes with the U.S. strategic interests. I mean, we're literally dissing, as Dr. Matthew said, Canada, our ally and, and nearest neighbor, and trying to encourage corrupt regimes who we've had all sorts of conflicts with to actually produce more oil. Why is it in our strategic interest to put ourselves in a situation we are, where we are more dependent on places like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia? I'd way, way rather be more dependent on Canada <laughs> than on Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Maybe we should ask Angela Merkel about that. She might have an opinion in terms of being dependent upon uh, yeah. authoritarian regimes for your energy supply. They are <laughs> going to learn that lesson and learn it hard this winter, I think. Well, the a, a third thing that really sort of confuses me is President Biden has been imposing more restrictions on pipelines, and we have millions of miles of pipelines within the country which take oil and natural gas and other products from where they're produced to where they can be refined, and then sometimes from where they're refined to where they can be sold and so forth. That goes on. But one of the things the environmentalists have realized is if they can, if they can really put a stop to pipeline construction, they can, it makes it much more difficult to get the product from where it's being drilled to where it can be refined and ultimately sold. And so he went along with that. And yet, and yet in the new um, Inflation Reduction Act, misnamed, but in that Joe, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said, I want to get some permitting reform to allow us to, to create more pipelines so we can move some of this oil and gas. The Biden administration went along with that. But I think the, uh, the administration's ace in the hole is they're going to have the EPA and other agencies come in and impose so many restrictions and roadblocks and other things that Manchin's not going to really get what he's hoping to get there. Yeah, funny. There's one large uh, natural gas pipeline project called Mountain Valley, mm -hmm. uh, which is in Appalachia. Obviously, that's where West Virginia is located. Uh, and there is it's 90 plus percent constructed. There's a very small amount that needs to, to, to get finished to get that in place, which obviously would be pretty helpful to all of Appalachian gas production, but particularly West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And maybe Senator Manchin has got a, uh, a, a gentleman's agreement to make sure that one goes through. You got to have gentlemen for that. Uh, I guess you'd have to use that term loosely, but, uh, <laughs> uh you know, I, I certainly hope that happens because again, using more, you know, clean domestically produced natural gas, I'd argue is a really good thing, but you're absolutely right. Dr. Matthews, if you eliminate, uh, the fact that, uh, the transportability of, of fossil fuels is one of its real attributes, but if you eliminate the ability to transport it, uh, you know, that really does, uh, you know, challenge the ability to use it. And if you look specifically at Appalachia, uh, right now, producers there are not increasing natural gas production, despite the fact we have very high prices. And they're not increasing production there uh, for one simple reason. You cannot build additional pipeline capacity to take it out of the basin. So, so, so far, we have discussed an administration that, in a period of less than two years, has promised to 
cut off permitting on federal lands and then flipped and, and tried to encourage it. Boasted of it. We have an administration that has promised to shut down pipelines and now also has made a deal to encourage them. Uh, how bad does it continue to get? Oh, much worse. I mean, there's several things you could do. Uh, it is an administration who's promised to make clean air a real factor and, and you know, viability, want to make the air cleaner. But they extended the, uh, uh, the ethanol mandate through the summer, the E15, I believe, so that you could, uh, which they typically stop during the summer because it pre- creates more smog. And so uh, from June 1 to, I think, about uh, September or October, they typically stop the sale of E15, ethanol, with 15%. But they decided to put a moratorium on that so that you could have more ethanol being out here in the hope of being able to reduce uh, the, co- the cost of a gallon of gasoline. Yeah, I mean, I think ethanol is a great example of how when government gets in the business of picking winners and losers with respect to energy sources, even Republicans tend to pick the losers. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, that's the case. That's certainly what they've tried to do, have more supply out there, even if it's ethanol. But uh, again, I think it'll at best marginally reduce the cost, which is, which is pretty darn high. So another real confusing point to me is I continually hear from the news media and environmentalists that Renewable energy has is becoming so much more affordable. It's competitive with oil and gas as a with fossil fuels as a price at the price. And so, okay, so if, if if it's really competitive, that sounds like they're making progress. But then, in the Inflation Reduction Act, they provide hundreds of billions of dollars to uh, in subsidies to various renewable energy sources. And I'm asking myself, all right, well, if these are competitive, and they oftentimes competitive. They say competitive even without the subsidies. Then why are we providing the subsidies if they're competitive? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, the only answer I've got is if they truly were competitive without the, without the subsidies, subsidies, you wouldn't need the subsidies. You know, fossil fuels were adopted. You know, starting in call the call it the you know, the eighteen fifties in England, starting with coal, and then obviously moving to to oil and natural gas later on. But they were adopted globally with no government mandates or subsidies. They were adopted just based on, okay, these were the best economic, in the best economic interest of consumers. Uh, And obviously with renewables, that has generally not been the case. It hasn't been the case in the past. Again, I don't think it's the case now. And it, you know, whether it'll be the case in the future, time will tell, but it is rather interesting that, okay, you've got to have an awful lot of mandates and subsidies for the production of renewable energy. And you also have to have a lot of uh, mandates and subsidies uh, for uh, the adoption of electric vehicles. And I just really wonder, uh, given that you know, the electric Ford F-150 is sold out uh, for as far as the eye can see, does it really make sense to put a tax credit on it when, oh gosh, maybe the manufacturer might think about increasing the price of that vehicle? Okay, so you've hit, you've hit my next confusing point here, <laughs> which is, all right, so we've got in the Inflation Reduction Act, they wanted to raise taxes, raise uh, taxes on higher income people and corporations. They were trying to gain more tax uh, revenue from them, but they wanted to make sure that it was just, everybody knew it was just for high income people and large corporations, except they also put in, they've re- instituted the $7,500 tax credit. There's even going to be a $4,000 tax credit for used electric vehicles in there. Um, 
And yeah, and that's typically for higher income people. Higher income people are the ones that that typically buy the cars. Now, I as I understand it, they put a income cap on these, but it's three hundred thousand dollars for a family. That's a fairly high income. But they, you're still you're. So, are we trying to? We're going out and we want to ding high-income people at the same time that we want to hand them tax credits to buy high-cost electric vehicles, and I'm just I'm just confused by this. Those income limits um, are crazy because, of course, you, you're still talking about the early adopters. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, if any technology, they're early adopters, and early adopters are willing to pay more. Uh, they're willing to take more risks. And early adopters tend to be people with lots of disposable income. So, you know, if, if it really is your policy goal to encourage as many EVs as possible on the roads, you wouldn't put caps on the tax credits and the incentives and things like that because the early adopters are the people who can afford them. But as Wayne points out, there's waiting lists for these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I think with, with a lot of vehicles, obviously now, given supply chain issues, there's certainly waiting lists. But with electric vehicles in particular, I, I certainly know that, again, the Ford F-150 electric, gosh, I think it's selling extremely well. Mm. Uh, and do you really need to subsidize uh, vehicles that you can't purchase for six months to a year if you were to go down to a dealer and try to get one now? I, I'd, I'd argue, why do you need to subsidize that? What's the... Yeah. And, and the other thing that's comical about that, Dr. Matthews and I were talking about this earlier in the office, there's also a limit on the only the only EVs that qualify this are EVs who are pr- predominantly manufactured in the United States, right? Right. So if if U.S. manufacturers can't fill the supply chain, and you're not allowed to use this tax credit for a Hyundai or a Toyota or a Honda or something like that, it's again you're you you're, you're this is it's contradictory to their apparent stated goal as to wanting to get as many EVs out there as possible. And it's not just on the uh, EVs that are largely made here but it also includes the batteries in there. Mm. So if you have a situation in which you have all these regulations and restrictions that make it difficult to buy an electric vehicle, but wait a minute, I thought your goal as an administration was to expand the electric vehicles. And yet you've got things in there which are going to make it very, very difficult to get one. Yeah. I mean, again, from what, what I've been able to read of it, it does appear that there are, uh, I guess, content qualifications, particularly for the batteries. Or, okay, you've got to have this much of the, of the battery content, i.e. a lot of rare earth minerals that, by the way, are not which, mined yeah, in we, the United we States. Yeah, we don't typically mine here. Yeah. No, they're generally mined in, hmm, let me think, China. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are, 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 we, are, we, are we putting ourselves in a position where, again, we could look like Germany that is dependent upon an authoritarian regime for a critical part of our energy infrastructure. It just, uh, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. It's funny driving over here. I did pass two UPS trucks that run all natural gas. Mm-hmm. And last I checked, I don't think there are any subsidies uh, that I'm aware of for uh, you know, vehicles that run on natural gas. And by the way, that's a technology that works. It's out there. And you certainly you, didn't. You drive a natural gas powered car for a while. I still own one. I've got okay. one hundred and seventy five thousand miles of experience. With, there you uh, go. With, with yeah. a Honda, a CNG Civic, and last time I filled it up, it was about uh, I think two sixty or two seventy a gallon. Huh. And it filled up in three minutes. By the way, it didn't, it, <laughs> it didn't take me overnight to charge it. You know, uh, Wayne, as a as a former CFO. Uh, of an energy company, you you made investment decisions and you also provided input to company management to make investment decisions and things like that. And it occurs to me that when you have these kind of policies that just keep flipping back and forth that are that are internally contradictory, 
you know, one month the policy is A, and then the, six months later the policy is, you know, anti-A, you know. Those uncertainties have got to be discouraging for businesses to actually make investments. I mean, how do you actually make a long-term investment? How do you make a wise choice when you've got these sort of flip-flops and contradictions in administration policy? Well, I think what you end up doing is you've got to plan for the inherent uncertainty of, again, say, dealing with, 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 a lot of fed, with a lot of federal land. Okay, I've got to make sure I've got a lot of permits that are issued much more because I can't necessarily count on uh, permits being timely issued, you know, six months to 12 months down the road. So I better have a couple of years of permits, uh, you know, taken care of already. Whereas if I'm on private land, say in the state of Louisiana, where, where Vine generally operated, again, getting permits out of the state of Louisiana to drill wells on private land was pretty easy. Uh, certainly did we keep a backlog of some, we, we did, but it's nowhere near the exercise that it is on federal land. So you've just got to build an awful lot of redundancy uh, into your capital expenditure budget. Hey, if something doesn't work out, the environmental study comes back and it's not favorable, or they find a uh, some sort of creature, critter, varmint uh, where you'd like to go drill. Uh, again, you you got you, you got to plan and plan around that and plan for those types of contingencies. And and everything you just described strikes me as increasing costs. Well, all of it clearly. Yeah, uh, it, it clearly increased costs. You know, um, it may be that the height of everything we've been talking about is exemplified by the fact that earlier this year you had a Biden administration, again, that had declared as its goals reducing our dependency on fossil fuels for about a three-week period of time, berating the fossil fuel industry for not producing more. And, you know, I, I remember thinking, you know, if I were like an executive with a fossil fuel company, it's like, you know what, we can't win. Uh, you know, you, 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 you've spent years sort of basically demonizing us as an industry, and now all of a sudden you're berating us for not producing more. And to me, that just sort of encapsulated all of these contradictions and incoherence of Biden's energy policy. And so, again, how can a business make investment decisions and long-term strategic plans when six weeks ago the administration was trying to hurt you, and now the administration is berating you for not producing more? Well, as an industry guy, the one thing I will say is that we did, uh, or at least I, I'll speak for myself, uh, I certainly gained an awful lot of solace in the fact that there is no immediate replacement uh, for a large percentage of the fossil fuels that we use in this country that the population would tolerate. Yeah, we found that out, didn't we? We, uh, we, we found out, you know, all you got to do, all you got to do is raise gasoline prices a couple of dollars and the administration goes into emergency panic mode. Well, the, no, they absolutely do. And uh, again, it, it really does make me wonder. Uh, if you think back, okay, uh, from say 2007, the United States has decreased energy-related CO2 emissions. I want to say it's, it's roughly 15%. So meaningfully, well, how has that happened? Because I think that is the objective, is decreasing, uh, again, man-made CO2 emissions. If that's, if that's the objective, well, well we, we've done it. Unlike most other places that have signed the Paris Climate Accord, I know we're back in it now, but we were out of it for a while. Well, how'd that happen? Well, we, we substituted natural gas for coal in the power stack. Now, that's largely what did it. Certainly, renewables came on stream, and that helped a little bit. But that's largely what we did, and it worked. So you would think that maybe somewhere in this policy mix that, that Dr. Matthews has been talking about, there would be incentives for some more of that because we've known that it, it has worked. I mentioned natural gas vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, they release less CO2 on a per-unit basis than a combustion engine that's running on diesel or gasoline. 
well, is there any, are there, are there any incentives to use more natural gas in transportation applications and to continue to use more uh, for the grid? Because that has demonstrably reduced energy-related CO2 emissions. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, Dr. Matthews, maybe it's in there. I'm <laughs> now, it seems like if, if you really did sincerely want to do everything you could do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, if you really were thoroughly convinced of the danger of climate change, that you would be, as a transitional matter, if nothing else, you would be promoting the transition to more natural gas. Both, both in vehicles and in power generation and everything else. Just even if, even if it was only a transitional part of your long-term strategy, Mr. Giovanetti, I'm shocked. Are you implying that's not the objective? <laughs> well, you know, if it really were the objective, I think we'd see them championing nuclear more than they do, and I think we would see them celebrating what you just described—the fact that the transition to natural gas has cut down so much in our greenhouse gas emissions. But we don't see that, do we? No, there's a uh, there's a great piece on the EIA. Uh, the the Energy Information Administration has certainly put it out about how uh, outlining what I just discussed in terms of the decrease of uh, uh, energy related CO two emissions, and I realize it must have been incredibly painful for the staff to have having to have written that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us in studio today. This has been great fun. We'll have to do that again. You can find a lot more about energy policy and economic growth at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.